6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck begins his teaching on the book of Hebrews with a session entitled Luke chapter 21. Well, we're technically in the epistle of the Hebrews, but we really completed it last time. But I thought it would be significant to add a denouement, if you will, a little addendum before we wrap, put the ribbon on our uh, commentary on Hebrews to talk a little bit about what happened just after this time. So this is really an addendum. Your notes and exposure to the epistle of Hebrews was completed, in effect, last Tuesday. But uh, this time... We're going to explore, and you'll see why, it seems strange at first, we're going to explore Luke 21. In, it's a chapter that's widely misunderstood. And so we, just to reflect a little bit, the Epistle of Hebrews, the first seven chapters is all about Christology, how Jesus is a better deliverer, better than the angels and Moses and Joshua and Aaron and all of that, and, and how he is heir then to a better covenant Better sanctuary, better sacrifice, better promises, and therefore achieves better results. That was all the way through the first nine chapters. The last few chapters were about applying all of this. And uh, we had a kingdom overview. Chapter 12, all the way through the, the epistle, but especially chapter 12, makes allusions to the kingdom. And many people are confused. They confuse the kingdom with heaven and the millennium and so forth. We tried to sort that out a little bit that this millennium is a kingdom on the earth that Jesus will set up. And that's not heaven in the final sense, that's a, that's, but it is a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And so we reviewed that as an insert, if you will, before we did to the final chapter, chapter 13. And that's where we were last time. And then we, um, uh, last time we uh, discovered that there were, uh, that the, the letter to the Hebrews was very successful in that the readers did what Paul was admonishing to do, to leave Judaism, not just emotionally, physically, to get out of town. And uh, that the three of the uh, uh, post-biblical writers, Josephus, Egepesus, and, and uh, Eusebius, record that uh, from 64 to 66 AD, tens of thousands of Jewish believers left um, Judea, not only Jerusalem, but some of the other areas, to Pella, to go to Pella, which is part of the Decapolis on the east of the Jordan. And they waited out those two years, and then the four years of the Roman War, from 66 to 70 AD, which resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, the slaughter of over a million, some say a million and a half inhabitants. No Christians were lost. No believers were lost. Why? Because they followed the directions. And there's more to the story. That's what I wanted to come to tonight. So we're going to look at this little addendum that we've added here. A denouement, if you will. And we're going to look at a few things. The destruction of Jerusalem that happened in 70 AD. And uh, we're going to look at some passages that seem to talk about that and yet maybe not talk about that. We'll take a look at that. We'll come across terms that are very confusing to many people. The abomination of desolation that keeps coming up in prophetic things. What is that really? 
What is it? When did it happen? Or has it happened yet? And that's confusing because Jesus makes, uses a historical reference indicating it's yet future, meaning that what, that's which happened is going to have a reprise, a, 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 a second fulfillment. We're talking about the Great Tribulation. Much confusion about that. We're going to talk about the parable of the fig tree. And what's this? Which generation shall not pass away? Jesus says that two different places. Is it the same, gener same generation he's talking about, or are they different? And we'll talk a little bit about the doctrine of eminence and what that means for every one of us here, every one of us individually. So that's what we're going to explore a little bit. A few preliminaries. Everything that you infer about the Scripture reflects your hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the formal word for your theory of interpretation. And um, are there rhetorical devices? Absolutely. But are they allegorical or literal? There are passages in the Bible, that are, are they allegories? Just figurative kinds of things? Or were they intended to be taken literally? Are these uh, several accounts parallel or separate? Many of them are so similar, we think they're two people's version of the same thing, or maybe they're different. And there's all, we constantly run this issue, uh, is it preci precise or approximate? Now, I'll tell you very candidly, in the 60 years I've studied the Bible, again and again and again, I've had to modify my previous views. But every time I have, that I can recall, every time I have, it's always been in the direction of taking it more literally than before. The parallel accounts are not necessarily the same account. They may be two different ones. And I'm continually overwhelmed with the precision of God's record. So that means I have what is called in the trade a high view of the text, a very high view of inspiration. Most modern churches are very sloppy, very casual. They don't see it that way, to their detriment, I believe. One of the things, though, that makes it important when you're studying eschatology, which is the fancy word for the study of the last things, is the reason eschatology is difficult, it really, it really requires you to reconcile the whole package. You, can't, you want to avoid one-verse theology. Every view you have should fit in with everything else. It's a totally, skillfully designed package. And that makes the challenge pretty substantial. We have an integrated, deliberate design that we're exploring. Now, eschatology, which is the study of the last things, your first why in the road is, are you amillennial or premillennial? If you take the Bible strictly, seriously, um, you would believe there's literally going to be a kingdom on the earth, the millennium, described not just in Revelation, but throughout the old, through the whole Old Testament. It's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. It has become fashionable in some circles to treat that all just symbolically. And uh, there isn't, th these, these people would be called amillennial. They don't really believe in a literal millennium. Jesus is going to rule, but he rules in our hearts, that kind of thing. And uh, so now that's your first. There used to be people called postmillennial. They thought the millennium was already behind us. But I think in the 20th century on, that's become very unpopular because most people realize that uh, things are not getting better, they're getting worse. That uh, the 20th century was the bloodiest century in human history. And so the postmillennial thing is really a thing of the past. A variation of amillennialism is preterism, you'll hear that term, people who say the prophecies have all been fulfilled. And that's uh, easily shredded, but be aware of the fact that there are people that hold that view. But you can't hold that view and stay strictly t uh, faithful to the Bible. 
In the premillennial camp, there's also three subgroups, people that believe that the church will go through the tribulation, those that think it'll be at least up to the middle of the tribulation, and those that believe the church is removed prior to the tribulation. Now the point is, most denominations that you run into are on the left side of this chart. They're amillennial and they're post-trib. Post most of us, because we take the Bible so strictly, are, would be called fundamentalists, premillennial, pre-tribulational. The point I want to make, though, is depending on your theory of interpretation, if you're willing to allegorize, treat these things just symbolically, you'll be on the left side of the chart. If you're very strict, you have a high respect for the precision of the text, you will be on the right side. But if I know your hermeneutics, I know where you'll come out eschatologically. If I know where you're coming out eschatologically, I know a great deal about how your, what your theories of interpretation are. little perspective. Now, one of the hazards we all have that can lead us to error is our presuppositions. We tend to impute something to the text that may not be there. And uh, it's interesting, just, let's just take one group as an example. Let's take the Jewish community and uh, see how they, they, they stumbled here in a sense. The original foundation was Mosaic Judaism, the Torah, the five books of Moses, and so on. But as time went on, they started to include in their perspectives what they called oral traditions. It's not in the text, but it was handed down orally. That led to Pharisaical Judaism. And that was the, Jude the form of Judaism that Jesus attacked when he was on this earth. Because they made so many of these rules that were really the result of their oral traditions, not necessarily required in the intent of the Mosaic Judaism. Well, some of those Pharisaical ideas in the 3rd and 4th and 5th centuries got codified into writing in the Talmud. And uh, Judaism went through a real crisis in 70 AD because the temple was destroyed. And uh, you can't have your forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And there's no place to shed blood, so suddenly you've got a real problem, a major contradiction. So they had the Council of Yomnia in 90 AD where they redefined Judaism into uh, uh, what it, most of us understand of it to be today. It's really a, 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 an emphasis on works, doing good works. And, uh, but, uh, and that led, of course, to the Talmudic Judaism. As time went on, you get to the 12th century, you have the Kabbalists. And by now, what they're doing, they're spending, they're attending more emphasis on the commentaries rather than the text itself. So much so, that by the time you get to the Kabbal, Kabbalah, uh, they're doing exactly the opposite of what the Torah requested. That one of the un unpardonable sins uh, was to uncover the Father's nakedness. And what Kab Kabbalah tries to do is to understand what's really going on inside the Godhead. Something that's prohibited. So there's a strange inversion going. There's a reaction to the Kabbalahs, which are called the Hasidics. Those are the guys that you see in the pictures with the dark, uh, the funny little curled sideburns and all of that. The, 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 uh, uh, anyway... Um, the point is, each one of these drifts further and further and further away from the original text. And uh, so one of, trying to learn from that, one of the things you're trying to do is anchor our views and perspectives in the text itself. Very important to do. Well, we also are victims of something else. There's a tendency to harmonize our Bible helps. 
to try to take all four Gospels and meld them into one story and so forth. Some of that can be useful for perspectives, but it all runs into danger because when you start harmonizing, you might start compromising. So I want to give you an example, and we're going to focus a little bit on a pivotal discourse called the Olivet Discourse. And uh, in this final week, Jesus took four of his disciples and gave them an inside briefing on the end times. He happened to do it at night on the Mount of Olives, so they call it the Olivet Discourse. And there's, and there's, is that past? The preterists would argue, well, that's all been fulfilled in the past. Now, others would say, no, it's still yet future, which is correct. And the, uh, is it one briefing or several? So I want to get into this. There is a concept of resolving power. If you, have a, if you buy a cheap telescope and go out at night and look at a star, you see a star. But you go back to the store and spend thousands of dollars and get a really good telescope and go back and look at that same star, you discover, in some cases, it's a double star. The ability of the optics to resolve two stars that are close together to really see that they're really two stars is a mathematical property of the optics that's called resolving power. We run into the same thing in our texts, strangely enough, because when we look at the uh, Olivet Discourse, most people would tell you, most scholars will tell you, that the Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. And it comes as a shock to many uh, uh, scholars to discover they're not necessarily the same thing. I got a phone call just a couple of weeks ago from Tim LaHaye, and he was startled at what he, because he was happened to be jogging, he was listening to one of my tapes, and and he was asking for the backup here. He got very excited as he realized the significance of what I'm going to show you tonight. Because both of these discourses, Matthew 24 and Luke 21, have many things in common. They both speak of a group of sorrows that are coming. In fact, Matthew gives it the label. He calls it the beginning of sorrow. It's a, it's, a, it's a cluster of certain things that both refer to. And because they're so similar, most people assume the discourses are the same, and I'm going to obviously suggest that they're not. And, uh, and you'll see why as we go, uh, as we go through all of this. All of a discourse. Now, I'm going to leave Luke 21 out for a moment. Mark 13 and Matthew 24 are virtually identical, except for one verse. They clearly are the same occasion. Four guys. Well, we'll get into this here in a minute. Matthew 24. Like we're going to just zip through. We're going to zip through Matthew 24 to get a perspective. Matthew 24. Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, "See ye not all these things? Verily I say to you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down." And by the way, 38 years later, that would be very true. It would be literally destroyed. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Now, Mark tells us there were four specific ones. Matthew, uh, it was uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew. Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were the four that came to him privately. The disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming? And the end of the world. The disciples came privately. Okay. Now the Mark account here points it out that it's Peter, James, John, and Andrew. So yes, they're disciples, but these specifically, these four. Okay. Now, if you take the Lord's disciples collectively, if you take all his followers, there's a bunch of those. The general public. 
To those people, he only speaks, after Matthew chapter 12, he only speaks in parables. Because something happens in Matthew 12 that causes him to change his whole style. And from that point on, in public, he only spoke in parables. Within that subgroup, though, there are 70. And then within that, there are the 12. Right? The 12 disciples. Now, within the 12 disciples, there are an inner circle. Okay? And that inner circle were people that, uh, three of the four, there's actually four, but there's three that were always present at the raising of Jairus' daughter. They were present at the transfiguration. The, the three of them had an, a closer proximity allowed to them in the, that evening in Gethsemane. And those three plus one are at the Olivet Discourse. Okay, let's continue then. We're at night on Mount of Olives. And Jesus said, said to them, Take heed that no man deceive you. It's interesting that Jesus opens and closes his presentations with an admonition, don't be deceived. Great, how do you do that? How do you keep from being deceived? That's your little field problem of the evening. If I understand how to do that. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. There are more prophecy books that talk about these as signs of the times, signs of the end. No, he says these are not signs. This and that and the other thing is going to happen. The end is not yet. I'd call these non-signs. Other things are going to be more distinctive. The end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginnings of birth pangs. Sorrows is the King James, but the term actually speaks of the kind of uh, pain that you associate with giving, uh, labor pain, uh, giving birth. This group of things here, nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, diverse places, Matthew uses a label for this cluster of things, calls it the beginning of sorrows. I'm going to lean on that as we go further here. This same group of things, false Christs, wars, famines, pestilence, earthquakes, are listed here in Matthew 4 through 9, chapter 24, verses 4 through 9. We'll discover that the same list is in Luke 21. And we'll also notice when we get to the book of Revelation that we have the same implications in chapter 6 in the first few seals that are opened when the Lamb takes the seven-sealed book and opens those seals. So this, these things are clearly in parallel. But let's continue then with the Matthew account. Then they shall deliver you up to be afflicted and ki shall kill you, and shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. Then shall many be offended and shall betray one another and shall hate one another, and many false prophets shall arise and deceive many. Notice the word in verse 9. Then. Matthew, in the Matthew account, we are continuing after all those things, some other things are going to happen. Okay? And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. And he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. For this gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And then he gets to verse 15, which is the pivotal verse in this whole discourse. Jesus speaking, he says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, 
Whoso readeth, let him understand. And then he goes on. How many read that with me just now? I did a dirty trick on you. Because you read it, whoso readeth, let him understand. You now have an obligation to understand this thing. And we're not going to explain it all tonight. You're going to take on the commitment to study this and understand what lies behind this. The abomination of desolation. We'll talk more about that in a minute. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Who wrote the book of Daniel? How do we know? Jesus told you. Now, it happens to be the best documented book of the Old Testament, but set that aside. You don't have to worry about who wrote Daniel. Jesus told you and that he was a prophet. And this abomination of desolation is something that's going to stand in the Holy of Holies. And we'll get to that later. Okay? Now, spoken by Daniel the prophet. Okay. And by the way, Jesus is pointing them to the book of Daniel to unravel. If you understand the book of Daniel, especially chapter 9, everything else in the Bible will fall into place for you. If you're confused about Daniel 9, everything else will be a muddle. Okay. A little background. Let's talk about the abomination of desolation. Going back before Christ, to about two centuries, Antiochus IV son of Antiochus the Great. Antiochus III was considered the Great by historians, but we're more interested in Antiochus IV. He became successor of his brother, Seleucus IV, who had been murdered by his minister. And uh, he was a despot. He's very eccentric and very unreliable, cruel, and tyrannical. A bad dude, okay? He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, which is an abbreviation of the Greek of Theos Epiphanes, which means a designation he gave himself. He's the God who appears and reveals himself. He calls himself a God, pretty arrogant kind of guy. We call him what? Politicians today, I guess, don't we? Okay. <laughs> that was just a silly crack. Antiochus undertook the total eradication of the Jewish religion. Bear in mind, he's a, he's a Greek king. Um, after Alexander dies, it broke up, and anyway, he's part of the Seleucid Empire. But anyway, um, and he made being Jewish punishable by death. He wanted to establish Greek religion, Greek polytheism in its, in its place. The observance of Jewish laws, especially those relating to the Sabbath or circumcision, were punishable by death. Can you imagine parents whose children have been circumcised? The evidence would cause them to be killed. All Jewish practices were set aside, and they sent troops throughout the towns and villages to make sure that the, they weren't obeying the Jewish practice, and they were there to enforce the pagan deities. This did not go over well, obviously. The representatives of crown everywhere to, to enforce all this. And once a month they would search, and, and, and if they found a copy of the Torah, they would uh, the person would be... Condemned to death. Okay, in Jerusalem, the 15th of Kislev, December 168 B.C., he broke the promises that he had made previously. A pagan altar was built on the great altar in the temple. The temple was stripped of all its treasuries. He pillaged the entire city of Jerusalem, took 10,000 captives, compelled them to forsake the worship. He forbid circumcision and so forth. And uh, this is all in Josephus, if you want to get into the background. And this was on his birthday... Uh, he brought a sacrifice. He, he uh, brought a swine to be sacrificed on the Jewish altar. Now, if you understand how the Jews feel about pork, and you understand how they feel about their golden altar, bad news. And they did this in all the villages in, the, in part of the country. 
And the big, the big move, dumb move, they erected an idol to Zeus in the holy of holies of the temple. And that did it. That was called a desolating sacrifice. That's where we get the name, Abomination of Desolation. And I won't go into all this right now. But anyway, this started a, the, the Maccabean a full, a full-fledged war. A group of officers arrived in a village of Modane. There was a priest there by the name of Mattathias, lived with his five sons. Mattathias killed the first Jew that approached the pagan altar, and he also killed the royal official. And he and his sons then were fugitives, so they ran for the hills. And that would have been the end of it, except one of those five sons was a pretty sharp leader. And... Uh, uh, his sons were John, Simon, Judas, Eliezer, and Jonathan, but Judas had a nickname called the Hammer, <laughs> Maccabeus. And that gives the whole movement its name, was the nickname of one of the sons. You may get confused because when they finally win, they call that the Hasmoneans. Well, that was the family name. The, the, it's called in the history books the Maccabean Revolt. That's because of Judas. He ends up emerging as the real leader here, and it just caught fire. And they actually threw off the, the uh, yoke of the Greek Empire and, uh, as a result of this revolt. And uh, Mathesias himself died soon after. And Judas uh, became a very popular leader and so forth. And um, he turned into a full-scale military engagement, which they actually uh, defeated the much more powerful Syrian armies. And so he... Uh, recaptured Jerusalem, he rededicated the temple. On the rededication of the temple, on the, 20, on the anniversary, the third anniversary, uh, is, is today celebrated to this day. It's called Hanukkah. And it's mentioned in the New Testament. In John 10, verse 22, Hanukkah is endorsed as a... As a you, you won't understand what Jesus is talking about unless you understand why it is they celebrate Hanukkah. Now, his Antiochus' death also took place, and... Uh, Judas uh, continued successfully to press now what was a really a war for independence. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Hebrews. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. <laughs>